Welcome to In Scripture, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. I know we are doing well. And speaking of that, I have a story for you guys. So yesterday, upon my adventures, I'm always listening to stuff. Um, for some reason, on autoplay, I had a I had a video. It was a, a po- apologetics themed video, and it was an it was a professor in apologetics with his students, and he opened up the class and he was like, <clears throat> hey, I brought over a friend today. Um, this guy is an atheist professor from uh, from UCLA, I think it was. And he's like, he's a close friend of mine, but I brought him here today to open up to you guys what it's like to be in an environment or to speak with a person um, who's probably smarter than you um, but at the same time, he doesn't know God, and he thinks he's firm that he doesn't know God. So he introduces this guy, and um, so my my thoughts right away were, ah, oh, this is going to be an interesting listen because these these students are going to destroy him. I mean, you you got a room, a classroom of like when I looked at the video, it seemed like there was probably twenty, thirty people in there, and it was a big, big auditorium classroom, and. It's just one guy by himself, and he's standing. He has no desk. He's just he has a chair, and he's kind of standing with his leg up on the chair, and that's just that's just it. And he's he does this opening, um, and he, you know he began with saying that I think all atheists say this. I grew up in a Christian family. I read the Bible. I did this and that. I went to church. I used to give you know, a tenth of my pay to church because I thought that was the right thing to do. I've been, basically they open up by saying, I know where you guys are at. And I think that's like a number one false thing that atheists do is they try to relate to you as if they know exactly your spiritual life because they've have been there. Clearly we all know the person hasn't been there. Otherwise he wouldn't be standing in the room like that. But he opens up like that and then he says, um, but then when I went to uh, university, um, I met some very smart people who really showed me that my faith was into nothing. Like there is no God. He went to the wrong university. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's teaching at UCLA. I mean, I'm sure Should UCLA is far, <laughs> far from <laughs> anything of God. But, um, but that's how he opened up, you know, and he gave his reasons why he doesn't believe. Um, and after he gave his intro, it was an open auditorium for questions. And that's where I got excited. I'm like, man, these guys are going to destroy him. They're going to they're gonna stumble him so much. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I was highly disappointed. The questions that they were asking were so weak. And it was like they heard a mention, like one little thing, and they're like, well, if you don't believe that God created everything, where did the universe come from then? You know, and it's like, Came from a dog. They're hitting him with these questions that I'm sure he's softballs. He's taught up on it, like he's studied this stuff because he knows he's gonna get asked that. Um, but nobody, you know, nobody asked him about guilt. Where does guilt come from? Nobody asked him about um, <clears throat> um, absolute any, truths. Any absolute truths? Well, also, I think one one interesting question, the best question that I heard was this girl was like are you married? And he's like, yeah, I am. She's like, well, tell me where do you get your um, instructions of love? 
where what do you know as love where does it come from and why do you do it if you're just if you're just an animal from evolution you know where does where does that your love come from <clears throat> and um you know at first he was he seemed a little bit stumbled but i think his answer was love is common sense um growing up living in my life i realized it's common sense to love and respect others and um and you know it, it made me think right away i'm like man we have a, we have a podcast coming up on loving your neighbor <laughs> um but i don't know i don't know how you guys if you guys ever watched a video like that i i suggest you do because it gets you fired up because in your head you know in my head the whole time i was like man i would ask them so many different things but at the same time they are students so who knows maybe their questions were are better than something I would have thought up on the spot, but I don't know. I was kind of disappointed. I mean, there was, because he the answers he was giving, like I've heard these answers hundreds of times, you know, it's like these basic atheist, uh, like the number one thing I would have asked him is, if you're an atheist, do you know everything? Do you know everything in the world? He's gonna obviously say no. Well, I'll be like, well, do you know half of everything? He's obviously gonna say, no, I'm pretty smart, but I don't know half of everything. And then I'll be like, well, what if God exists in the world that you don't know about? Maybe you just don't have the knowledge of God. You know, being an atheist, you're saying that you know exactly that there's no God. And it's like, you could not be knowing so much. So I don't know. What, what would you guys ask? I feel like <clears throat> moral questions are the direction I would head into. I feel like arguing with someone, especially if you know that they're smarter than you and way more educated than you, Arguing with them about science, like facts, is it, unless you are. I'd hit on, the heart. I would do the yeah, same exactly. thing. It, yeah, exactly. Unless you're on that level as well, where you know that you know science on the same level as them, if not better than them, then I wouldn't go in that direction because you're going to probably just dig yourself into a hole. Mm -hmm. But moral questions, moral conversation is something that I would have. And I feel like that's something that even if we're not like in my personal ex experience working with, with even the church community, those are usually the better questions to be asking as it is. I, I feel like most problems that we have with our faith, even if, again, you're talking about like an atheist, a guy who hates religious like people. He, he hates the idea of Christianity. He, he opposes it. I mean, this guy wakes up to go to work and tell people about how like this isn't real. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's more to world to the world than than Christianity or some some god somewhere. So, and, and I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about like just regular churchgoers who may have not accepted Christ yet. Yeah, like teenagers who haven't accepted Christ yet. Even with them, I feel like making trying to make some sort of like factual argument isn't even the way to go because the problem isn't that they don't have like, in my opinion and from my own experience, the problem isn't that they don't have the factual evidence to believe in, in Christ. The problem is their heart and that there's something missing in their heart. And, and that's why I would, I would push in that direction more and maybe try to get down to why he doesn't believe morally that there is more to this world. I like that question about marriage. You know, mm -hmm. I think that that is a good one that, where do your where do your morals come from if you believe that there what's is wrong and no, right you know what's yeah, wrong exactly. who tells you what's wrong and right and i'm sure they have their own justifications for those things 
But at that point, I feel like there's more of an argument to make, and there's maybe there's a loophole where you can kind of come in. And- you gotta hit them with what you're strong in. Yeah. So if you know Jesus is in your heart, you are already into a into an area where you're you understanding that gives you. I think you have enough knowledge to to really touch another person's heart. You know. Have you guys ever come across um, the way of the master? Yeah. Where he does street preaching and he evangelizes in the street. Is that the guy from Living Waters? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kirk Cameron and yeah. um, Ray Comfort. Yeah. It's amazing the way, what they do and how effective they are. So you're a sinner and a blasphemer. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly what Mark was saying. You can argue with a person for hours. You can yeah. sit there and argue about evolution, about morality, but it has to go down to the Bible. And I remember um, they had some of the training videos that they put together, how to witness and to how to be effective. And they always... Uh, reminded and brought up this scripture. I'll read it. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. It's when you bring up the law that the person has nothing to say against that. Mm -hmm. They can argue and try to wiggle themselves out of every kind of argument because you can have one study and there's always counter studies to disprove that study. Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Here, so like, here's the thing about science and your, 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 your younger brother, Alex told me this was just pretty cool. Cause we were talking about education and, um, he's a little bit more educated than most of us here, but I was like, in your field, what's the, what's the craziest thing you learned? And it's like a kind of oddball question, but his answer was pretty cool. He said, I learned that in, in the industry of science and just, just medicine and any of that, there's a lot of stuff, or or uh, in 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 research, there's a lot of stuff you can make up and you can ignore some facts to push your point easily. Mm-hmm. He's like, it does not take much. Very and easy to fake. You know, science. when you do your masters, you do this. Um, what do they call it? A uh, were you there? Thesis. Uh, like a thesis. Yeah. So basically, you're taking some time to study up or experiment something, and then you officially at the end you make a, a paper, write a paper about it, I guess. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you show all your uh, facts and proofs and studies and what you've learned. But that's the thing he said is it's, there's a lot of stuff you can make up. So my point being is when you argue science, they push evolution into science so much with made up things that no matter what you say, no matter what kind of fact you give them, they will counter it with a mm-hmm. fact that they heard somewhere, read somewhere, mm-hmm. and they might even bring you a, well, the proof, go read this book. Well, yep. it's like the book could be false. Yep. I mean, you know, they're talking about vestigial parts still in, in, in science books of evolution. Like, you know, the whale has the uh, vestigial structure. He has that pelvic bone or whatever. And they're saying, well, the whales had feet. They use that to reproduce. It's like it's been proven wrong for ages, for like hundreds of years, but they still have it in the books. Mm-hmm. So just because it's in the books does not mean it's, yeah. factual at all true so you you that's what that's what i'm kind of going at is i would definitely go for the heart because a person needs to understand who he is and he's a sinner yeah and as, right? as believers that's that's what it really comes down to we're not yeah. trying to i don't think we're trying to change them in one conversation and i feel like if that's your mentality heading into it i, I don't want to say it's wrong but it's almost the wrong approach because a person who has spent 50 years believing one thing isn't going to just learn everything about the absolute opposite in one conversation. So as a believer, our main goal for any conversation if that we're going to have with a non-believer is to establish they are a sinner 
in need of a savior. Mm-hmm. That's that's the key right there. Get, and get right to the heart. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, those other those other parts of the conversation, I think it's important for us to be very, very aware of that. And again, that doesn't mean you're supposed to just run into any any argument or any confrontation with anybody because there needs to be education behind it. You need to know what you're doing because you'll very quickly realize that very often you're the one who's uneducated and in a disadvantageous position when you start arguing with people. And a lot of people who are against our religion know the Bible very well too. And Jesus so, didn't argue. And, and I think, you know, and I was going to bring up an example about the lady at the well. She received life from Christ and she went back to the city and preached. Mm-hmm. Do you think she had a doctorate in theology? No, she met Christ once, had a conversation with him, but she understood what the most important part was. And that was enough for her to go back to the city, even though she was the least qualified person. It was enough because the only thing that mattered is the one thing she knew. And I think that's, that's the approach we have to take. We have to both be confident because we have salvation through Christ, which means we have the answer. But at the same time, we have to be wise in how we do it and understand that we're here to save people and, and just arguing for nothing isn't going to help anybody. One, yeah, one thing to keep in mind when you're talking to an unchristian person, I heard this somewhere, was um, at the end of the day, no matter how mad they or aggravated they are with you, you're helping them. You're their friend. For example, you see some very drunk guy, right, somewhere, let's say a bar, shouldn't be at a bar, but if you're at a bar and you see a drunk guy but you take his car keys, are you helping him or are you hurting him? Ultimately, you're helping him. You're being that caring friend because if he gets behind the wheel, chances are he's going to get into an accident, right? So by taking away his car keys, he might be aggravated or angry at you, but you're actually helping him and the person is just not realizing it. So I think the same goes when you try to... Um, talk to somebody and sometimes personally, right, about their heart, about where they are in life, why were they born, and you start going into this. Even though they might get aggravated at you, you have to remember you're helping them because there's going to come a day where they're going to be like, uh-oh, you know, I messed up. Um, and Nobody you could be wants there to be told they're a sinner. Saying, I told you so. <laughs> but ultimately, you're helping. And that's what you have to remember. And, and, and that's the thing. God is always going to be there. He's going to give you the right ideas and right thoughts. He might even... You know, he's always going to assist you. He's never going to just abandon you to be on your own and try to argue with some guy about science or something. S- throw all that away, you know, just just focus on life, focus on the person's heart. And I think um, each each person can do that a lot easier than going and speaking about, you know, evolution. And I think what God needs is someone to just be there and just talk. I remember when we went to New York Manhattan, yeah. Brighton Beach, and we would come up to random people and talk to them about God. And literally, I remember myself, I literally <laughs> knew nothing. I just went out there and you just start talking to people. And just bringing up an idea about God gets them to just think. Mm-hmm. You know, they might come back, they might just say, brush you off and say, get lost, kid. You're like 15. You don't know what you're talking about. I've been in Jewish faith for 30 years. I know the Torah. I know everything. What do you know about it? get lost. And then they might come home and God starts working on their heart. And I like we've been reading through, um, you know, even in the gospels, God's, God chooses the weakest people, you know, who are humbled and God uses the weakest of us all 
the poor of this world. Exactly. To bring it's, out. It's the only option he has. <laughs> so I, I just want to say, no matter how weak you think you are, just you sharing your faith is powerful and you have no idea how you're affecting other people. Yeah. Agreed. I was still disappointed though. They could have done better. <laughs> it was all, it was just, it was just these, these easy questions. And I'm like, come on. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't think that guy left or converted, but <laughs> you never know. Speaking of, I don't know, conversion. No, it doesn't make any sense. Anyways, we're in James chapter two. <laughs> smooth um, transition. Smooth. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they're smooth. Sometimes they're rough. You just got to go with it. Um, we began chapter two talking about favoritism and showing partiality. Uh, I think a topic that's so important, but very rarely discussed. I know I've only discussed this topic maybe one other time in my life. I probably was talking about James with somebody, but maybe it was just last, last podcast. <laughs> um, I, I know we all left this room last time really kind of eye-opened, uh, just going over that section of showing partiality and how easily it could be done, but at the same time, how wrong it is. And being as Christians, you know, James talks about what it is to have faith, to be a Christian, to be um, a child of God, and you have these things in your life that could distract you or slow you down. So partiality is one of those things that I think, I think everything James touches on is stuff he saw happening. I think you guys would agree with me. Mm -hmm. Of course. I'm yeah, pretty so sure it's stuff that they... Targeted have. audience, for Otherwise, sure. Otherwise, they wouldn't be writing it, even right. Paul and other apostles. So apparently, partiality, we spoke last time, was um, was a pretty big thing going on. And James talks about the uh, assembly, right? A man walks in with gold rings and, and, and fine apparel, and he's treated one way. And then comes in a guy with filthy clothes, and um, he's treated a different way. And definitely demoralized and treated like he's worse or he's, you know, the lowest of the low um, and how that's wrong because you're showing favoritism towards a different person. Um, I know we talked about usually when you show favoritism to one person, you're only doing it to get something to benefit yourself. Oftentimes we put ourselves in that picture and what can I get from this person? And I think that's like one of those triggering things that usually happens, um, but... I mean, other people might have other motives, but essentially the only reason you would favor somebody is because you're getting something from it. I'll go ahead and uh, read the part that we're going to discuss today, uh, which is going to be chapter two, verse eight through 13. We're going to finish chapter two today, right? Yeah, yeah right. Um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and start reading it. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery but do, do, not, commit adultery. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is so smooth with his words. I know, right? He like, I, I'm honestly really shocked. He, he kind of takes this little example about a rich man and a poor man and he turns it into like 
he kind of progresses it so smoothly in these couple verses and it goes into something so much more deep than just like judgment over a rich person or he a like poor person. raises the stakes yeah, to the ultimate like, level. But he does it so smoothly. It's not like he's like hard stop with my example. Next verse, you're all sinners. Like he he kind of transitions so so well into a deeper thought and I I really love how there's so much more to it because I feel like we've talked about this before but a lot of things that we encounter in scripture they're they're kind of symptoms to a, a greater problem and it's some just like we were talking about you know with our with our opening conversation that the problem is usually deeper than just what's going on on the surface there's there's usually more going on in the heart itself and I feel like James kind of touches on something a little deeper than just oh a rich man walks into your congregation and a poor man he's kind of now he's br- branching off into something a little bit more than just that and I, i'm i'm just excited to talk about it so what do you guys think uh so he goes into saying if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture what do you guys think the royal law is i think of two things right away um i think of looking at the commandments what are the what are the one or two most important because looking at commandments love you your God. love your god and love your neighbor right that's he even that grabs a piece of it yeah. yeah so um that's kind of what comes to my head is the the two most important ones and i feel like those if you do those two you should succeed in in well i can't say you can perfectly follow the laws but you should succeed in a way where uh, the other laws won't be that difficult. Do you guys remember um, when um, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew mm-hmm. 22. And it says, he answers, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There you go, Vlad. Perfect answer. Using the Bible. <laughs> um, then the, that's the thing. Those two are kind of the foundation, I feel like. You know, it's interesting. Those two laws are not actually part of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so I don't know why I mixed in the two Ten Commandments. But Did you, what, what, you raised your head so interestingly, like so fast when but I love said your, that. Isn't loving your neighbor one of them? No, it no. says do not covet. Oh, uh, okay. But Maybe we should pull up. Because I know in Deuteronomy, it talks about loving God. Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Leviticus, Leviticus takes, talks about loving takes, your neighbor. Yep. Yes. Leviticus combines them. 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's taking the so love of your neighbor fully wrong. from Leviticus. Yeah. I wasn't fully wrong. But being those two, I think, to, to answer your question, um, the royal law is um what jesus said that it was why do you i guess my other part question what makes it royal that jesus said it i think that's he is king of kings he is royalty as far as our religion is concerned so his law and that's the ultimate that's what you know what vlad just read that is the ultimate law those two laws Therefore, it's it's the royal law. It's the one I think that you Christ can say himself. sovereign or even supreme. Supreme, the supreme law. That's that's a good answer. I was actually I have that in my notes is because um, obviously we know that 
this is he's referencing Jesus's words, which Jesus referenced God's words back from Leviticus, right? But what's interesting, if you remember, um, during some of our Bible studies when we talked about uh, or we're studying Luke, and when we talked about how Jesus constantly kept saying that the kingdom's at hand, and we all we are all part of this kingdom, right? It's not just a village, it's not just a settlement or a city, it's a kingdom, and Jesus is the king. And for us to be part of the kingdom, we have to s submit ourselves to the royal law. Hence, why James, like I said earlier, he really takes things up a notch. This isn't just some words that Jesus spoke, right? This is royal laws to love your neighbor like yourself. If you can't do this, you can't be part of the kingdom. And it makes sense that he would be he would be writing about this specifically because, like we talked about in our previous series on on James in chapter one. He opens up this book explaining how he's he's writing to everybody. There, there's no like specific congregation that he's writing to. In verse one, he says that uh, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So he's writing to a very broad audience of believers. So it would make sense that he would cover a topic that applies to everybody, because everybody should treat their neighbor with love. And and it makes sense that he's telling all these different people, hey. This is the royal law. Like you're saying, in this kingdom, yeah, there's churches all over the place, but all of you follow the same law, and all of you are under that same law. So keep that in mind while you're part of this kingdom. Yep. You know, it's interesting. Um, you read that, pass that passage from Matthew. I do want to uh, kind of focus back to another passage in Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, this is his Sermon on the Mount. Because uh, he kind of states a similar thing. Well, let me open my Bible to it. Uh, About the, the meek. Sort of. So chapter 5, verse 43 and 48, uh, Jesus says the following. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, uh, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For me, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Do not, even the, uh, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I really want to emphasize uh, or at least get our attention a little bit. Just in the verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I've never paid attention to that. I've heard it being preached so many times, right? Somewhere in the mouth, famous passage, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, right? What's interesting that Jesus points out here is this, is that you have heard that it was said. And I never paid attention to this, but you will not find this uh, where this passage is written, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. God never commanded his people to hate their enemies. This is something that the Jewish nation took and twisted and corrupted it to their liking. Or maybe it got lost over time. Kind of like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There is, a, com there is a command for that, right. yes. But they took that But they took that to the further. extreme, yeah. right? Further than what God actually intended it to go to. And so here where he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I mean, they were definitely all over that. And we can definitely see that in the two New Testament Gospels and all the other books and how much the uh, Jewish nation hated the Gentiles. Anyone that was different from them, they hated them with a passion. 
Like there's no way they would be saved. And they thought that they were right because they believed that it was okay to hate your enemies. But Jesus Christ says, no, that is wrong. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Everybody. You have heard, not what you have read. Exactly. You have heard, not what you have read, not what God said. That's a great point. Can you read the last part of the section that you read about Christ? Um, the last verse? Yeah. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. So what's why do we why are we commanded to love? Because God loves everybody. Exactly. If we have true saving faith, we are t- supposed to emulate God and Christ, correct? We are supposed to be like him. And how is God? God is unpartial. He loves everyone and he is holy. And we are supposed to emulate that and we're supposed to be like that. So that is pretty much just saying God loves perfectly. God is impartial and we must be impartial. If we love everybody, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we fulfill the law, Mm -hmm. as it says. Which is something that James goes on to saying, like, if you love your neighbor, yeah. good. That's good brownie points for you, right? But that is not all. There is so much more than just loving your neighbor. And he goes on. Uh, do you guys have anything else to add before I go on? Yeah, I wanted to add, um, you hear that phrase a lot, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I know I was telling you guys earlier, but if you focus on um, here, it even says in verse 8, the second part, um, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor um, as yourself. You do well. So um, we, when when thinking about loving your neighbor and thinking about those words as yourself, what I wanted to say earlier was I don't think James here is advocating that self love is okay. That self love is is by saying you do well. That self love is something that's all right to do as long as you're loving your neighbor. I think the focus, and you guys have said it, um, you guys just talked about it, the focus is on loving the neighbor. Um, I think the only way you could compare it to something that touches your heart is mentioning yourself because um, we do show, you know, we take care of ourselves. We, We live with ourselves. We wake up looking in the mirror at ourselves. So yes, in a way we do love ourselves in some sort of way, but there is a downside if you love yourself too much. And all I really wanted to bring up is um, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 2, to kind of say that loving yourself is still a sin. Mm-hmm. And when, they, um, when, when 2 Timothy writes about the perilous times and perilous men at the end times, like he mentions here in, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says that, "...for men will be lovers of themselves." lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unfaithful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. I think every single one of those characteristics is something we can see not only in other people, but we might even find those things in us. So loving yourself is not a good thing to do. You shouldn't be doing that. I think it's still a sin, but the way James compares it or mentions it, and even Jesus, it makes you think. It makes you think, wow, I do love myself a lot. And that's a strong love. Do I love others that way? I think those those words are carefully phrased because otherwise you wouldn't think of it you know, in that way. Your list that you read, 
if you flip it, if you love your neighbor as yourself, will you be those things? Arrogant, boastful. You can't. How can you be uh, unloving, unholy, unforgiving, you know, slanderous? How can you be lovers or you could be still lovers of money, I guess, but could you could you be disobedient and disrespectful if you love your neighbor? I think it'd be hard as to yourself. Do, do you want to be treated like that? Exactly. Yeah. So I do want to point out two things. Um, one, it's gonna be real quick. One, it says according to the scripture, mm-hmm. love your neighbor as your uh, love your neighbor as yourself according to scripture, not according to what culture pushes or whatnot. And the second thing is uh, kind of on that note, culture love is so twisted nowadays and so washed down. It's easy to get lost. Uh, lost and lust, uh, <laughs> but the, my, my, I want to just emphasize, and I don't want us to discuss this, but to move and go ahead and move forward. I just want to put this out. Loving your neighbor versus being friends with the world are two very separate things mm-hmm. and don't get those two confused. That's it. That's what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Let's move on. Going with what you were talking about earlier, Serge, not that, but earlier. Um, I think that's what James kind of continues here in verse nine. He says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality, it's almost like, um, it's another word for favoritism. You're, you're more, you're directed in one, your attention is more directed towards one person or one thing more than towards others. So he's telling us, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. You were talking about how there was never a law for you to hate your enemy. That was never God's law. That was never intended God has always been a God of love and that applies to your neighbor as well as it applies to your enemy. And I think that's where he kind of takes it that one step further. And he's saying, don't show that partiality just because you don't like that person doesn't mean you have the right to hate them going along with what you guys are saying. You know, you're not gonna, you want the best for yourself. You prioritize yourself more than anybody else. And yet scripture tells us that's how you're supposed to treat other people, which in this case, James is telling them that you're not supposed to show that favoritism towards a specific person. And I think at this point, yes, I think he's kind of going further off of what he was talking about earlier in this chapter about the rich man and the poor man. But I think he's opening up a whole different topic at this point. I think he's taking it a whole step further. And I think that is because he now is just talking about sin in general. He he it's almost like he's no longer talking about that specific sin of picking a rich man over a poor man. Now he's just talking about the law and the fact that you broke one part of that law. And he concludes verse 9 with saying that you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Because you broke one faction of it, because you messed up in one aspect, the whole thing is now disrupted. Yeah, which I just to add on for context, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And what um, I'm just going to actually read, add on verse 11 for context. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressors of the law, of, of the law, right? So what he's re- uh, saying here is that uh, it's it's kind of interesting. Like from verse eight, it seems like like verse one through seven, he's kind of setting the stage, right? Like here's you got this situation. Verse eight, and he kind of saying he's kind of getting ready to trying to soften the blow, really. But in reality, he comes in hard, full swing, right? He says like, if you love your neighbor, good job. But if you mess up in one thing, 
it is the same weight level of you being a sinner as if you have broken the whole law, every single part of it. It is the same thing is what he's saying because we believe in one God who created the whole law, right? He has no different weights in terms of, oh, if you just lied, that's just a little sin. It's fine. It doesn't mean anything versus like murdering, like, oh man, that's that's something big and, and heavy. No, he says he brings up a very practical, common, simple example, partiality. And he's trying to emphasize that no matter really what the sin is, it has the same weight. If you failed in one point, you have, it's as if you failed across the whole law. That's, that's, that's how important it is. Yeah, that's perfect the way you put it. And it's like we discussed before, it's amazing how James frames this. He starts with partiality. <clears throat> a man comes in, you treat one over the other, and that's a sin of partiality. And he says, it is sin. And after the last podcast, I remember we were talking, we're like, this is probably the one most overlooked sin among Christians that we rarely even talk about. We just gloss over it and we pass through it. And I think this is the first time I actually notice how James emphasizes how serious partiality is. And he elevates it to murder and adultery. Do you guys notice that? Mm-hmm. How he elevates it to the same level and he says, if you do partiality, but you don't murder and you don't commit adultery, you still broke the law. Mm-hmm. You want to know why? First John three fifteen: whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Exactly. If you choose one neighbor over the other, there's, there's negative feelings towards someone. Clearly there's a reason why you don't love one neighbor and you love the other one. I don't, maybe it's not hate necessarily, but we read that hate is equivalent to murder, murder in God's right. eyes. So, yeah, you think, man, I've never murdered anybody. But, hey, you being impartial towards your neighbors is now kind of factoring into the fact that you're choosing one life over another. You're choosing one one soul over the other soul. And in a way, it ends up magnifying itself. When you're looking at the law as a whole, it magnifies itself. It's not just one little mistake. Now it's a big mistake that you made. You know, it's interesting. Apparently, this, this has been a problem you know, through all their, ever since they got out of Egypt. Because even in Leviticus, uh, God, through Moses, writes, uh, again, going back to chapter 19, uh, just a little bit earlier though, in verse 15, he says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So partiality has been, you know, with them ever since they left Egypt. It's, it's not a new problem that the church are, churches are having then. What they have now, we, we still have the same problems today. You know, I was reading through this and a thought kind of crossed my mind because James uses this such a perfect example, such an obvious example. And I was kind of thinking about this and, you know, you guys brought up that this is, you guys were talking about last week, how this is such a prevalent issue that isn't ever brought up in churches. Mm-hmm. And I was... I was I had that exact same thought while I was preparing for today and I was thinking okay so how what other ways are we doing this because yeah we do it sometimes with the whole rich man or a poor man or the the successful person versus the unsuccessful but we almost like I don't want to say that we're we're better than that but in certain ways I feel like we have progressed past that but there still isn't this this idea of us as believers sometimes thinking a little too highly of ourselves 
And I realized that a very common way that we do that is we look down on other churches, almost like because of minor differences, we assume we're a better neighborhood. You know, we're supposed to love our neighbors unless the neighborhood across the street has a slightly different mindset. And all of a sudden, they're a horrible place to go, right? Mm -hmm. And and I mean, we're thinking about it and it's crazy to me how common that is in churches. How because of the most tiny difference, and I'm not talking about like the difference between Christian Baptists and Catholics. I'm talking about like two different Baptist churches. <laughs> it's just in one church, I'll bring up this example, women are allowed to wear jeans to church in another church women have to strictly wear past the knee dresses. And you think about it, you're like, what's, what's the difference? Should there be a difference? Technically, no. But we have that problem. We legitimately will take such a small thing and we'll show dislike or hate towards our neighbor. Is that not the same sin that you would be, that, that James is bringing up here? The fact that we look down on a church who believes in the same blood of Jesus Christ that saves them, but because of minor little differences, we showed that that hate towards them, and and it's so it's so prevalent in in our day to day lives now that it's, I mean, it's crazy that James is writing about this so long ago, and yet we're talking about so it prevalent. as if like this is something someone wrote last week about how we need to do better in this aspect. Well, but it's real. It's real. If we if we look to today, look at all the race, all the prejudice, all the all you know all the conversations going on and the world tries to solve those issues of race and equality they look for laws they want to pass laws they want to fix it through that means and we know that's not going to work so like as christians it's even more you know prevalent on us how do we treat and look at other people who are not like us who are part of a different culture a different race and we can blame it on our culture. Oh, it's just, it's not a big deal. But really, let's stop and think, how do we treat other people that don't look like us, that don't speak the same language as us, don't have a different culture than us? If we step back, all the way back, as Christians, we are the same, correct? We are all the same in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of God. He has no partiality. You and like somebody living in India in a, in a dirt hut, we are the same in God's eyes. And I we catch ourselves so often how we think of ourselves like you were saying, like we're so better than everyone else. And like how that is sin when we think that way. Mm -hmm. and it's just a, such a stark reminder of how <laughs> wicked we are. Yeah. And it can be, you know, like you guys already mentioned, could be things like culture, could be financial gain, as James writes, it could be even education. I'm smarter than you, therefore you have no right to ask me questions, right? It, it, could be from anything from the car you drive from the clothes you wear from the friends you, ha you hang out with unfortunately it that's the sinful world we live in today there's people showing partiality and the separate is in church based on those things james uses a keyword here that i think we read over but we didn't really get into is transgressor and um, a transgressor is a person who um, violates a law or goes beyond its limit or beyond the boundary um, of that law. And a transgressor, I think, I don't know, it could be, I think it could be another name for sinner if you look at it spiritually. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a transgressor, transgressor, you're obviously violating some sort of law, so therefore you're a sinner. Um, I think sinner is maybe a, a sin. Sinner is maybe like a more simple way of thinking it, but a transgressor is kind of a strong word here in this in these couple of verses because what you're doing is by showing partiality, um, you become convicted by the law. And just because you're keeping one part of it, you're failing all of it. And we've mentioned this, but that that's what makes you a transgressor. He mentions it twice. He says that um, if you show partiality, you commit sin. That's it. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. So you committing the sin of partiality is what makes you a transgressor because you know the law and he he mentions it again and he says um do not murder now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so again do not commit adultery do not murder but if you do one of them it makes you a transgressor you're already going beyond the limits or beyond the set limits of the law what's interesting is that if you if you try to think of the jewish culture right to them a command was a very common thing that you hear, right? The law of God, the commands of God. That's that's that was their livelihood. That was their bread and water, right? For us as Christians today, we're not really used to hearing those kinds of com- uh, terminology that the Lord commands or something like that. Usually, we say, you know, Scripture says this. Scripture says that. Jesus said that. It's not so much as we say, although maybe we should, that this is a command of God to do such and such and thing, right? Besides, we, everyone knows the Ten Commandments, right? But here he says it's 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 the command, and for when James calls them transgressors, that strikes a very, uh, you know, a strong chord in their heart because they can relate to what a command is and what it means to break the law, right? Which is exactly what transgressor means. Um, at the same time, I think for us, maybe we kind of have a disconnect there. It might not have such effect on us, maybe because of just how our vocabulary has changed over the last, you know several millennia or so. But to me, it's interesting how he picks the specific word transgressor, breakers of the law, because we do that ourselves. And we, I think we, we ourselves can definitely become and even are transgressors in a lot of things, not just partiality. I think Mark brought up a way that um, we can show partiality we see. Um, I think I have another one that could probably relate to everybody um, at this moment. I think... Sometimes partiality can be as little as having a youth group be together but still separate into groups because there's a reason they're in groups. Now, I don't want to say that anytime you see groups, that's it. Everybody's showing partiality. I think some people just like hanging out with people they're closer with. Yeah, they have their cliques. But there comes a time, and I've heard this talked about, that if you do approach them as a youth leader and you're like, hey, get with those guys – or get in the team with them. Sometimes you do hear things back like, "I don't want, I don't hang out with them. I don't know who they are. I don't, I don't." Or it's even they're weird and I'm not. So once you get into that zone, even though it's small, it's a small way of showing partiality. I wouldn't say, I don't think there's levels of partiality. <laughs> if you're showing it, you're showing it. You're doing it. But I do want to mention that you know we think to ourselves, this is just a small way of showing partiality. Like, I think they're weird. And that's okay if I think they're weird. That doesn't mean I have to go and be with them. But at the same time, 
why aren't you going to be with them, right? Why aren't you going to be uh, closer to them? Why don't you get to know them? But you're not comfortable with it because you're already small way showing partiality. And I think it's one of those things that could possibly grow into something worse. So right? what can we do? What can a Christian person reading this do? Reading verse 12. <laughs> so speak, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We talked about law of liberty in James chapter 1. What is it? Liberty is being free from sin and the law of being free from sin. So essentially, if you follow the law, the freeing law, you are free from sin. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Um, the two things I got for myself, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree about the law of liberty. So obviously, there's definitely a reference to James chapter 1. Um in verse 25, but those who, uh, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer who forgets but I do her acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's definitely a couple things here, right? One, it's there's several calls to action, right? Look into the law of liberty, which is the word, right? The perfect law, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres right being no here who forgets but a doer her acts so you have to look you have to persevere and you have to act upon the law of liberty but what is the law of liberty obviously we i think we can all agree we mentioned this in, back in james chapter one that it's jesus christ it's freedom from sin like you said if you accept him as your personal savior believe it you know his blood his death and resurrection right it gives us uh it gives us freedom from sin freedom from god's wrath but at the same time, I do want to add on one more thing is that it gives you freedom to choose, right? When when you live, I don't know if you guys can remember your life as a sinner, but when you li when I lived as, you know, a very sinful life back before I met Christ personally, when you did certain things like sinful things, you kind of told yourself, I don't, it's like, I don't really want to do it, but you continue to do it anyway. And I'm sure people, you know, still have that feeling, but you continue to do it anyway as if like it's pulling you in and you can't break loose. Like you, as if you have no choice, right? That's, you are bond to sin. You're a slave to sin, right? You have no choice. But when God sets you free, right? You have the choice to worship God or not to worship God, right? You have the choice to live for Christ or not for Christ. You have, you have that choice. You have that freedom. And then obviously, you know, the things that you can or cannot do, that's a whole nother subject matter. But this is like you can spiritually breathe again and not feel like you're enclosed or being uh, closed in and trapped with no escape by sin. Uh, the law of liberty, freedom. And I think verse 13 kind of builds upon that because you're talking about being free because you are with Christ and you, your sins are forgiven. And he kind of caps this off with, you should not be showing judgment towards other people because you yourself as a believer understand what it's like to be lost to that sin, to be trapped in it. Like you were saying how you were just kind of, you're just doing it, you know, like it, it wasn't even that you didn't have a choice because you did, but you were just drawn to it. it. And as a believer, we shouldn't have that sort of judgment towards non-believers, towards people who might be struggling because we understand what it's like to struggle because we still live in this sinful world and the way he ends it, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. We 
are the ones who were first and foremost had mercy shown towards us because Christ died for us. So there's no reason for us ever to show some sort of harsh judgment on someone else because Christ didn't do that to us. He first and foremost showed that mercy to us. So we should take that same, that same mindset, that same love towards our neighbors and we should show them that love and that mercy. And maybe even going back to what we started about, you know, that's the best way to share Christ. Mm -hmm. That that's the way you actually share the gospel. It's to live it. It's interesting how he brings this, um, this uh, phrase, in, well, not phrase, but this piece of scripture, for judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's kind of like a very odd statement given the context of you showing partiality to rich mm -hmm. or poor people, right? Um, and partiality to anything. But to me, what that speaks to me, how can I apply this to my life today? Um, I'm convicted that when I encounter such people that typically people would think lower of, the way I should approach them not so much as on their level, um, but try to exalt them, right? Bring them up to, I don't want to say my level, like I'm better, I'm not. But don't don't look down to them as someone that's a nobody. Show mercy to them, show kindness, show love, show affection, make them feel like a somebody, right? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do that to the rich or to the wealthy or to the other you know side of the people, but we need to level the playing field. We need to treat everyone exactly the same way. One, We can't treat one person better than the other just because of the way they look, the way they dress, the, how much financial gain they have or whatnot. And that's To close this out, I had one last thought that I wanted to share. Um, again, like we were talking about, James kind of takes this common example and he, he brings it into something so much bigger than just favoring one man over another. And I think a big part of it is, is something that I know I brought up before and I know we've talked about before the idea that and I brought it up earlier in this episode actually the idea that there's there's more depth to to humans than just simply the surface level sin there's a reason why you choose to show favor towards one person over the other there's a reason why you're slacking in a specific law and by by default you're breaking all of the law and I think the heart of a human is is what's really at play here and I think as we grow in Christ you realize that the law isn't, isn't, it's not intended for us to kind of look at it the way we look at like our day-to-day -day laws because the law itself scripturally is, is God himself. It's him making himself known to humanity. It's him instilling himself into, into these commandments that help us grow closer to him. And if you follow the law, you end up growing closer to him because you understand him better. You understand a merciful God when you can force yourself to be merciful every now and then. You understand that God is love when you experience that love firsthand and then you share that love firsthand with other people. And I think that's what that's kind of the, the crux of what's going on here that as believers, it's not about just checking off that I followed the law today. It's more than that. It's about having that personal relationship with Christ. And when you focus on your relationship with him more than just checking off the law on a daily basis, you kind of, by default, you end up fulfilling the law. You, you'll, you'll do what's right because your priority is Christ. Mm -hmm. And you won't really have to worry about maybe messing up because 
I know that my main priority, you know, today, tomorrow, and God willing for the rest of my life is to serve the Lord. And so I don't have time to slip and fall. I don't have time to, to say the wrong things. I don't, I can't afford to hate my neighbor because I only have a couple years on this earth where I can preach to my neighbor. And when you have that mindset, you start thinking a little bit differently and you kind of start approaching things a little bit differently. And I think that's, that's something that I want myself to improve in. I, I would pray for all of our listeners to improve in that aspect, our, our personal relationship with Christ and understanding that if we're personally all right with him and if we're, we have a strong bond with him on a personal level, all these other things just kind of, they'll happen because that's that's what having a relationship with him produces. It produces mercy. It produces grace and love and joy. Fruits of the spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible day, Lord. I'm so thankful for this opportunity that I had with my brothers to open up your word and to study scripture. And I'm just so thankful for the blessings that you pour upon us, Lord. I'm so thankful that we live in a time where there is no persecution that I'm going through, that I can freely and openly study your word and glorify your holy name, Lord. And I pray for myself, for my brothers here, for anybody who may be listening. I pray that you help us to be more loving, to be more kind, more graceful, and more merciful to the people around us, to understand that everybody is struggling that we're all a part of this sinful earth and the devil is trying to bring every single one of us down every single day lord help us to be a a light to the people around us to show them what it means to be a believer lord not because there's something good about us but because you live inside of us and because you are that light i pray that you help us to continue to grow in our love of you and our desire to to grow in you and your word and and our prayer with you lord i thank you so much for everything in jesus name i pray amen